What does it mean to be human? Fyodor Dostoevsky once wrote, Every ant knows the formula of its anthill. Every bee knows the formula of its beehive. They know it in their own way, not in our way. Only humankind does not know its formula. Well, what if knowing the formula of what it means to be human was as easy as listening to the creator of humanity? It was one of those conversations that he walked away from on his way home, trying to rush there to get in time, get there in time for dinner, the, the conversation just spinning around in his head. I don't know if you've had a conversation like that that just turns everything upside down, that you open your eyes back up after hearing it and the entire world just looks a little bit different. See, he had the chance to sit in on a teaching of Jesus. And the teaching of Jesus was very different than the other teachings Jesus did. He'd, he'd certainly talked about the kingdom of God as was his normal method. He'd, he'd talked about his pending death and resurrection. But, but then he said something that just struck this man to his very core. And as he walked along, he knew it would definitively change the rest of his life. See, Jesus, like he was his custom, he was, he was teaching, and his mom and his brother were outside, and, and they sent a messenger in saying, we just, we just need a word with my son, Mary said. And the runner with the message came in and said to Jesus, hey, Jesus, your, your mom wants to talk to you, and everybody saw it happen, and everybody heard the words, and Jesus' response are what captured this man's mind. See, because what Jesus said was, well, who are my brothers? And who is my mom? I mean, a little bit rude, if you can hear what he's saying. He's saying, well, certainly she's important, but she's no more important than any of the rest of these people. He goes on to say, stretching his hand out towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever, which is pretty all-encompassing, is it not? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, you have to understand for a moment that this man had grown up in the quote-unquote church. He'd grown up going to temple. He'd grown up worshiping Yahweh, the one true God. And he went in, every single time he went into the temple, he walked past a little plaque on the wall that said, if any Gentiles, non-Jews, enter past this point, they take their own life into their hands, and their death is only to be blamed on them. That's a pretty strict way of operating socially as a community of faith, is it not? You didn't miss it. We don't have the same plaque on our door, Okay. He, he, he went in, and he would go to his side every time, and his wife, because she was a female, would go to the other side because men and women sat on different sides of the aisle. So when Jesus says, listen, who are my brothers? Who is my mother? The, the entire community of faith is now not just a community of faith, but they're actually a family, 
These are my brothers. These are my, not just fellow believers, but these people are my family. You can imagine if you were in that crowd at that point and heard that teaching, it would have turned your world upside down. So I'm going to put all my cards on the table today. My hope is that we would hear the same teaching with the same weight. That maybe, just maybe, we would walk out of this space today allowing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to redefine for us what it means to gather as a quote-unquote church. Because I'm sure you're aware there's a number of different ways to view church. There's a number of different ways to view what we do together on a Sunday morning. And some people you can read and, and they will view church as an organization, So it has a certain hierarchical structure, there's leadership, and certainly church has leadership structure. That's a good thing, that's a biblical thing, that's a necessary thing. But they'll view church as an organization. Or you maybe read people who, their view of church is, church is sort of a business. You know, they they own property, they have assets, church functions like a business or, or a corporation. Or maybe church is, primarily for you, maybe church is an event. It's something that you come to on a, on a Sunday morning. But when Jesus looks at this crowd and he says, who is my mother and who are my brothers and who's my sister? Except it's, say it with me, church. Whoever, who, whoever is by faith in relationship with God, whoever lives in the way of Jesus, these are my brothers and my sisters. See, what Jesus does is he explodes every single category for church that we've ever created. And he paints a more beautiful, more compelling picture of what it means to be church. And here's how we'll say it this morning, is that God calls us out of the world to call us to a family of faith. That word that we translate in our English translations of the Bible, church, is a Greek word, ekklesia. Will you say that with me? Ekklesia, good. It's two words. It's a compound word. Two words put together. One is ek, or out of, and and the other is a derivative of the word um, that means to call. So to call out of. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus doesn't call you out of the world to create an organization out of you. He doesn't call you out of the world to go to an event. Can we face it? Let's be honest for a second. If church was only about Sunday morning, if being a follower of Jesus was only about what we do on a Sunday morning, that would be pretty lame. Right? Yeah. No, he doesn't call you out of the world to say you should go to an event. He calls you out of the world to say you're part of something much bigger, much grander, far more beautiful than you could ever imagine. You are now part of a family of faith. Paul would echo this in our main text for today. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And the apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, this church in this just multicultural melting plot area right on the coast, filled with both Jews and Gentiles, and he says to them this, he says, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of, say it with me, church, the household of God. 
he's painting a far different picture. When he says household, he, he's inviting you to say, this is my family, and in my family, I find protection. In my family, I find security. In my family, I, I find love. In my family, I find hope. See, the truth of the matter is, friends, if we are, as we've just sung, adopted by the same father, then we are now family, for generations, followers of Jesus had this term of endearment. They called each other brother and sister. That's not just a, a thing that they do in the South. You know that, right? Like that's been all throughout the ages of Christianity, brother and sister. Why? Because when we stepped into faith, we stepped into family. New birth equals new family. That's what God is doing as he calls you out of the world to live in the way of the world, calls you out of that and into his family. And he write, the great New Testament scholar, he said it like this. He said, the fact of widespread persecution is powerful evidence of the sort of thing that Christianity was and that it was perceived to be. It was a new family, a third race, neither Jew nor Gentile, but in Christ. From baptism onwards, one's basic family consisted of one's fellow Christians. We struggle with that, don't we? I mean, I mean in a culture where there's a lot of different options for quote-unquote church, there's a number of churches within walking distance of this church, and what happens when that's our culture, and I'm not, I'm not bashing that necessarily. I think it's a great thing. I think we need more churches. But what can start to happen to us is we start to view church as something that we consume rather than something we become a part of. Uh, you can see this in, in the reasons that people sometimes give for leaving a church. I, a popular pastor compiled a number of different reasons that he'd gotten over the years or that he'd heard from other pastors of reasons people left churches. Here's a few of them. Said, Pastor, we're leaving the church because we need and you don't have a small group for cat lovers. See, I'd love to start a small group for cat lovers. You know what that's called? Our next church plant. Right? Gather them together and send them out. Right? Praise Jesus. We are praying for you. And all the dog lovers, this is a safe place for you. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't send me an email. Do not please, especially not, don't post kittens to my Facebook wall either. I don't want, I'm allergic to them, even non-real. Okay. Pastor, we're leaving because we don't like the sound of your voice. Pastor, we're leaving because we're starting to serve too expensive of coffee and it's attracting too many hipsters. <laughs> Pastor, we're leaving because your socks are distracting. <clears throat> Pastor, we're leaving because preachers who don't wear suits and ties aren't saved. It's in the Bible. Which, as a pastor, makes you question what you've been teaching the entire time, right? So, Pastor, we're leaving. You should make people, because you make people leave the youth group after they graduate from high school. Which is basically just a terminology issue, isn't it? Because if we don't make them leave, don't we just call this youth group and everybody's happy, right? Okay. We're leaving because we need to start attracting more normal people at this church. 
And if you say that to me as a pastor, I would say back to you, your departure will likely help us in that, right? <laughs> pastor, this is the, the second to last one. Pastor, I've developed cancer because you don't preach from the King James Version of the Bible. That's a real one. I didn't know there were carcinogens in the NIV or the ESV, but evidently there are. Finally, pastor, we're leaving because you don't ever preach on Tim Tebow. What? <laughs> what would you say? Like, really, this is how you throw a pass, Tebow? No, okay, fine. Some Tebow fans, I get it. But, yeah, we view it as consumer and product, don't we, oftentimes. And that the fact that the scriptures will say we are a household of faith, that we are a family together, is something that if we just admit at the onset we struggle with, I think it will actually help us engage this topic with more honesty and more fortitude. Because what God wants to do in our midst today, I think, is paint a, a different, more compelling, more beautiful picture of what it means to gather together and to be a church. You don't come to church, you are the church. And in this series, what we've been doing is exploring what it means to be human. The title of the series is This Is Us, and we've started off by looking at us as individuals, and we zoomed out and said, how do we function as human beings in relationship with other human beings? We said last week that, that one of God's unique designs for human beings is that they would operate and thrive in family units. And what I want to do today is zoom out one more level and say part of God's design for you and for me is that he would call us out of the world and to each other to live as a family of faith together. And I want to answer two questions in the remainder of our time. One, how do we become family together? How do we become family together? Secondly, what do we do as family together? Ephesians chapter 2. Will you turn there in your Bible if you have one with me or your screen or your device? And if you don't have either of those, it will be up on the screen behind me. And Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus, like we said, it's a multicultural melting pot church where there's people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different languages, different skin colors, and they're all gathering together in households declaring that Jesus is Lord in light of being in the empire of Caesar. This was a, a death threat for many of them. And here's what the Apostle Paul writes back to this church that he loves, that he planted, that he helped start. He says this in verse 13 of chapter 2. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Anybody, you're, you're there this morning, that is you. You were far off at one point in time, and Jesus brought you near. That's me. For he himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commands expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's very um, illustrative language. It's, it's meant to have a visceral effect on it, us as we read it, that he killed hostility. Verse 17. He came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who 
were near. But now, church, there's something different that's gone on amongst all of us. Mainly, the blood of Christ has been shed. What a beautiful truth. Did you know that the church is the most inclusive, exclusive group you can be a part of? It's inclusive in that it is for whoever. Whoever will come. Whoever wants to come is invited to the table. Whoever wants to come can come, but they only come by one way. We only come, all of us, by his blood. We only come because he said, I'm giving my life for you as a sacrifice for you that you might be called out of the world and into my family. We have that in common. We have this peace in common. Peace with God? Certainly, by his blood, he's made peace. Do you know if you're a follower of Jesus, God has zero animosity towards you. If there's a disconnect between you and God, I want to assure you this morning, it's on your part, not God's. He's good with you because he sees Christ's righteousness all over you. And he says this, Paul does, he reconciled, he called all of us together by his goodness and by his grace. See, what makes us family? Well, the first thing that makes us family, according to this passage of scripture, is that we have been united together by his, Jesus's blood shed for us. That's our anthem. That's our song. All throughout eternity, our anthem will be, why should I gain from his reward? I do not have an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. We'll never get tired of singing it. And the truth of the matter is, friends, we're united by his blood, and the blood that Christ shed for us is as significant as the blood that flows through us. Good luck writing that in the blanks I have. I screwed that up. (laughs) This week, you're welcome. Friends, the blood that runs through our veins makes us human. Blood that flows from Calvary's hill makes us Christian. And it is the most significant, most true, most beautiful thing about us. As followers of Jesus in the first century would have entered into a home where they would gather for worship, it would have been definitively different from gathering in a synagogue or in a temple for worship or even in a pagan temple. It would have been very different. Why? Because the ground was level in the community of faith in Jesus Christ. Neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male or female, all were one in Jesus. Why? Well, because they gathered around the truth that his blood shed for them was as significant as the blood that flowed through them. It completely redefined the way that they looked at life and at faith. He, by his death on the cross, killed hostility between believers. Praise the Lord. But we know it's not that easy, right? Just so we're all dialed in, 
It is not just, well, isn't it wonderful? This being a part of the church is just rainbows and gumdrops all the time. It's, it's wonderful, right? No, there's times where we need to, because of the blood of Jesus, it's over us, choose to forgive the people that wrong us. And we do so because we sense the beautiful weight of the fact that we stand before the throne, holy, spotless, pure, and blameless. Anyone is welcome, but there's only one way you enter, and it's through his blood. And Paul goes on. Here's what he says. He says, for through him, we both, both Jews and Gentiles, we both have access. Now, just a quick time out. That word in the Greek is this picture of a road, that we're walking the same road together. We have access to, or access in one spirit, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit, to the one Father. So the first thing that makes us family is the blood that was shed for us. The second thing that makes us family is the spirit that dwells within us. That the same spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, if you're a follower of Jesus, lives in you and in the person who's sitting right next to you who's also a follower of Jesus. The same spirit lives inside of you. So we'll say it like this this morning, that the spirit that dwells within us is greater than the sin that seeks to divide us. And certainly there is some sin that seeks to divide us, is there not? There always will be. It's true in marriages. It's true in families. You don't need to say amen too loudly. It's true in families. It's true in churches. As we talked about last week, family carries with it this magnificent weight that none of us leave unaffected by our family. It either shapes us for beautiful things or it's one of the deeper wounds or pains that we end up carrying throughout our life. The same is true of church, friends. Did you know you will never find the perfect church? If you do, don't go to it. You'll ruin it. And if you think this is the perfect church, welcome. We're glad you're here. You must be new with us. And we are really glad uh, that we're going to pop that bubble for you. We're going to burst it over the next few weeks. We'll let you down. I promise you we will. It's not intentional. We want to serve you wholeheartedly with everything we have. But we are imperfect people, every single one of us. And what the spirit inside of us does is it reminds us, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer so eloquently put in his book, Life Together, that true community actually begins when the ideal community dies. That we really start living life together when we let each other down and choose to stick together instead of separating. That we really start to realize what it's meant to be, what it means to be part of a community when we completely fail one another and grace or love covers the multitude of sins. That's actually when real community begins. And what Paul says is that we are not only covered by a mutual shedding of his blood, but we are connected by the spirit that indwells us. So, so just let me give you a picture of what that spirit in you is doing right now. And as you think about what it's doing in you, would you imagine him doing this in every follower of Jesus? He is right now confirming that you are a son or daughter of the most high God. He is right now 
calling you out of rhythms of fear that you have embraced into courage of living in the sonship of the Father by faith. The Spirit is inside of you right now confirming that you are lavished with the love of your Father. He is right now advocating for you and the person sitting next to you before the throne of God, pointing at Jesus, your chief defendant, who says, my blood covers their sin, their wrong, their guilt, their shame, their with me. The Spirit's inside of you right now, the scriptures say, teaching you, revealing Jesus to you, and being a comfort for you. And the same Spirit who's doing that in you is doing that in every follower of Jesus across the globe. That's epic. That's amazing. That's really good news. And shared intimacy with God should always, always, always lead us to a mutual love for other believers. So Paul says, listen, we have the same spirit. It's part of what makes us family. We have the same blood that was shed for us. It's part of what makes us family. And finally, he says this, and we're built on the same foundation. Friends, this is where we all stand. As followers of Jesus, the Messiah, we are on the same foundation, that which is the same as the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is being joined together. It grows into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. See, this truth that The foundation of our lives is not only the the God who created us and spoke us into existence, but our foundation is the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. It's It's a way of talking about the sacred scriptures. That from the get-go, followers of Jesus were saying, listen, we don't worship the Bible, but we worship the God who is revealed in the Bible. And it's our guide, and it's our light. And it's our plumb line in an ever-changing culture and a milieu of different options. This will be the thing that we stand on and the thing that we say. And that all the things that we may disagree on, we will agree on what the words of Jesus invite us to build our life on. His death, his life, his resurrection, his kingdom, his call to love God, to love others, and to go and make disciples, teaching people how to love God and live in his way. So we'll say it like this this morning, that we are not only united by his blood, connected by his spirit, but we're built on this mutual foundation, and the foundation we stand upon is greater than any of the issues that seek to divide us. When they go to build a new skyscraper in, on Manhattan Island, if you see a skyscraper that's 100 stories tall, Here's what you would see if you were to scan beneath the surface of the earth. You would see 25 stories worth of what they call piles that they drive deep down into the center of the earth. Why? Because they know if this structure is going to stand, its foundation must be firm. And so what the scriptures tell us is that the the piles, if you will, that God has driven into our soul as a community of faith, as a family of faith, the foundation that we stand on are 
the scriptures that he's graciously given, the teaching that has been passed down from age to age to age. And it's centered around that Jesus be, is the cornerstone. What the scriptures are saying when they say this is that if you were to take him out of the equation, this whole thing would crumble and fall. Praise the Lord. That that's how we grow. We are growing numerically and maturity in faith as we grow together, not independently of one another. And that it says, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, look up at me for just a moment. If you want to experience the Spirit of God, you must give your life to God's church. It's where his spirit dwells. It's where his spirit finds its home. It's where it manifests and where it grows into fruition. It's a, we are a dwelling place for God in a unique way, giving glory to his name. So that's how we're family. United by his blood, connected by his spirit, built on his mutual foundation. Now, you may be saying to me, well, Paulson, that's wonderful and that's great, but what do we do as a family together? I'm really glad you asked that question. I didn't, don't know what I would have done with the next 12 minutes if you hadn't. So thank you for asking. And before we go there, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about going over to, uh, going to a restaurant, Chili's, um, on Valentine's Day, Okay. When you go to a restaurant, there's a number of things that you do. You probably make a reservation, and when you call and make a reservation, you talk to somebody on the phone, you set up a time, and if you're anything like me, you get there a little bit before the time that your reservation is scheduled for, and then they say to you, hey, Mr. Paulson, Mrs. Paulson, it's going to be about 10 minutes before we're able to get you seated, and I'm like, really, because our reservation was at 6.30, and now you're saying 6.40. Okay, so that's, that's okay, and I decide then I will hold off on my Yelp review at this point based on what the service looks like and how good the food is. But if you're at a restaurant, when you sit down, you're paying attention to the waitress or waiter that comes over to your table and offers you some water, takes your order, and then when the food comes, you're looking at your food, and if you're anything like me, you're sort of sizing up your food, sort of a cost-benefit ratio that you have working in your head as to whether or not you're going to return. It's, an, it's a complicated equation. It's an algorithm based on how quick the service was, how good the food was, how inexpensive it was. That's how you decide whether you're going to return. Well, you eat your food, and then afterwards you decide, listen, that was a pretty good meal. It tasted good. The service was good. I think I might come back, and I'll hold off on posting that Yelp review. Now, if you go over to a family's house for dinner, my guess is your approach is very different. If it's not, you may not have been invited over to your family's house in a while, and so this is free. This is for you this morning, because when you go over to a family's house, here's what you typically do. You ask, is there anything that I can bring and then when you walk in the door, you say, is there anything that you still need help with? Is there, is there anything that needs to be sliced or diced? Or is there any way that I can help? And my guess is you don't sit down at the table waiting for somebody to bring you a glass of water and taking notes on whether or not they're smiling when they do. <laughs> See, going to a family's house is a lot different than going to a restaurant for dinner, is it not? 
So, is going to church, coming to church, is it more like coming to enjoy a family meal, or is it more like going to a restaurant? I'd like to propose that it's far more akin to going to a family's house for dinner than to a restaurant. See, when you go to a family's house for dinner, the goal is relationship, not the product of the meal. My guess is you've never walked away from a family dinner going, listen, unless the steak was really rare, that could have been a little bit better, or that food was terrible. My guess is you walk away either celebrating or lamenting the fact you were together as family. So here's my proposal, and then I want to unpack it. Being a part of a family of faith demands that we move beyond observation and into participation. It demands that we move beyond consumption to a place of contribution. And it demands that we move beyond criticism to a place of construction. So what does this look like in the scriptures? Hebrews chapter 10, flip over there with me. Just a few verses, or a few books to the right. And we're going to land the plane by just saying, really practically, what does it mean to be part of a family of faith? If God calls us out of the world to create a new family, what does it look like to live as family? Hebrews 10, starting in verse 24. And let us consider how we can stir one another up towards love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here's the first thing. If we are going to live as a family of faith together, we've got to be committed to meeting together. That we would gather together consistently. That's part of the ethos of people who live with church as family. Okay, so I'm just going to put all my cards on the table. I get it. It's hard. It's hard to say we're going to make Sunday morning a priority. There's nothing else that gets on our calendar from 9 a.m. till 12 p.m. I get it. It is hard to say that. We're facing, as our family um, continues to, as our kids get older and older, we're facing the reality that sports are going to start to happen on a Sunday, and we're going to have some choices to make. Here's what I will say to you. That, that if we don't prioritize the, the gathering together as a community of faith, we'll never realize the beauty of being part of a family. And so I'm not going to, my goal in zero way, shape, or form is to induce guilt. I know that a person in Denver who goes to church regularly, that means they go every other week now. I get that. I understand that. That's true. That's the, that's the step. But here's what I just want to push on you gently to say, will you pray about whether this is a priority, whether it's a big rock in your life or whether it's additional time that gets you, get, you do if you have the time. You make the time for the things that are important. And here's my goal as your pastor. My goal as your pastor is to say, I never want coming to church to feel like duty. I want you to feel like when you walk in these doors that we've thought about you 
that as a staff, we've prayed for you, that we have poured blood, sweat, and tears into preparing something that will feed your soul, and that when you walk out of this place, you go, all right, Jesus, thank you. I see you differently. I see you fresh. I see you new, and I'm ready with the community of faith to walk with you. Let's do That's our goal. We don't want it to just be duty. In fact, Joseph Hellerman in his book, Church's Family, says that the idea of salvation cannot be reduced to a personal relationship with Jesus. God's plan is much more encompassing. God intends for salvation to be a community-creating event. It's true. It's beautiful. So practically, what does that look like? Let me just give you a few ideas. One, come early. I get it. I know. Some of your mind just went... I get it. It's not easy. Come early. Stay late. Hang out in the lobby. Talk with people. Pursue people. If you are a young couple in this church, I want to plead with you to be on the lookout for people, for couples who have walked the journey of life and faith, who have raised kids and done it in a godly way, who you look up to, that you will tap on the shoulder and say, I need you to walk with us. For the young moms, I would say the same thing. The moms wondering if you're going to survive life. You need to do the same thing. Be on the lookout for people who you can say, I want you to walk with me and then pursue them. Invite people to go out to lunch with you after church. Invite people to come over to your house. Take the initiative. Look up at me for a second, you guys. If every one of us took the initiative to do the things we wish other people did for us, this church would transform the world. Let's pursue each other. Hang out at the table. Drink coffee to the glory of God. Become a greeter. Become one of our people that welcomes other people at the door. Become an usher. Serve in kids' ministry. One of the greatest ways to get connected with other people is to serve alongside of them. Hang out afterwards. I get it. You have places to go. My family was always the last family to leave any church we were ever a part of. Ironically, it was God's way of preparing me for the life he had in store. So, outside of Sunday, join a life group. This is not a program. There's a, this is family, you guys. And there's some gifts that you have that can't be used on a Sunday morning. Does that mean they're not important? Absolutely not. Because the gathering or the event of Sunday morning is not the only time we live together as family. Okay, so... If I were you, I'd be asking, well, okay, great, so we, we gather together. What should we be doing when we are together? Great question. Let us consider, it says in verse 24 of chapter 10, how we can stir one another up towards love and good deeds. This word consider in the Greek literally means give headspace to, think about intentionally, fix your thoughts on, or even obsess about a little bit. So, Put that in the context. Give headspace to fix your, fix your thoughts on. Obsess about how you can spur or stir or jab in the original other people towards love and good deeds. When you walk through these doors on a Sunday morning, when you interact with people from your church family throughout the week, is your desire to say to them, God has more in store for you than you're currently tasting. 
is your desire to speak a word over their life about their gifting and the way that God might use them for their joy and for his glory in his world. Are you thinking about, dreaming about, praying about words you can speak into other people's lives that will spur them on, stir them up, and call them forth? See, the scriptures would say that we do this first and foremost, actually it would say inspire each other towards love and good deeds. But in Galatians chapter 10, it says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Let's be clear. But Paul says, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. One of the ways, one of the ways that we operate in this way, one of the ways we live this out corporately is by our benevolence offering that we take on the very first Sunday of every month. And can I just say, I love the fact that there's a number of you that give to that. Because this week, or this month, we have helped people with, you've helped people with their rent. You've helped people with their utility bill that may not have been able to keep the lights on without the gifts that you gave. You've helped people with, by paying for their utilities. I love that we do this. You've helped people who are broken, hurting, and in pain get into counseling to become healed and whole. I love that. Let's spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let's create a culture that empowers each other to say, God has a way he wants to use your life for your joy and for his glory. Will you speak that into somebody's life this week? Because you never know. There may be somebody who you encounter that really desperately needs it. Two more and then we're done. But encourage one another. All the more as you see the day approaching. So what, is we, what do we do as church family? Well, we gather together. We, we think about each other and how we can spur each other on to love Jesus and the people around us. And then we encourage one another. I love the way that Dale Carnegie in his great book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, put it. He said this. He said, you can make more friends in two months by becoming interested in other people than you can in two years by trying to get other people interested in you. So if you're having trouble connecting with people, if you're saying, listen, I feel disconnected, I don't feel like anybody knows me, I feel like fill in the blank, which is a reality in a church our size, that can happen. Can I give you some really practical advice? Encourage people. Build into people. Notice things in people. Compliment it. Admire them. To encourage is to call alongside of. You do that with people, and I can guarantee you that you will be, find yourself a part of a beautiful community that Jesus is the center of. We encourage each other regularly. Practically, okay. Practically, what does this mean? It means you pray for people. If you're, if you're not a part of our weekly prayer email that gets sent out, will you send, and, and want to be, will you send um, our office an email this week? I will get you on that email. I would love for you to pray for the people in your church body, in your aisle, who are, who are hurting. Pray for one another. Send a text, send a note, send an email when people are hurting or sick. Reach out, pursue. Third, if somebody's sick or has a baby or loses a loved one, volunteer to bring a meal. If we don't have a meal train set up, please set one up. Other people would love to get involved. Sometimes we just need somebody to take the initiative who knows what's going on. But encourage one another. 
mentor. I've already talked about that a little bit, but, but extend yourself to be a mentor for other people. This isn't an organization. This isn't an event. This isn't a corporation. This isn't a business. This is family. This is who we are, and we need you to take initiative. And finally, that we would encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. Part of what we get the chance to do as family is to remember we have a good father and to remember that our Messiah, Jesus, says he's coming back. And so, yeah, we gather together, we inspire each other, we encourage each other, and we anticipate eternity on a regular basis. We get the chance to say to each other, I get it, I get it. But these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Friends, before his throne, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, that is the destiny of people who follow the way of Jesus. Worshiping and declaring that there is none above and none beside him, but he is king of it all. And what we get to do on a weekly basis and throughout the week is remind each other of the deepest realities. He reigns. He's coming back. He's good. And he loves us. Would you stand with me? And we're going to close our time together this morning in a little bit of a different way. I'm going to ask you to hold hands with the person right next to you. I know we don't normally do that. Some of you are going to love this. Other people, you may not come back. That's a risk I'm taking. But I just want us to, to end our time by reminding ourselves that in the end, this is our posture. We're gathered together around the throne of God, declaring the praise of God, remembering that it's only by his blood, remembering that we're bound together by his spirit, and remembering that we stand together on the foundation that he laid before the foundation of the world. And we will gather and in one voice declare the one name that stands above it all. So as you hold that hand of that person next to you, remember they're part of not just your church, but they're part of your family. God has a great, beautiful design for his church, not as an event, not as a corporation, not as an organization, not as a business, but as a family. So Jesus, together we come to posture ourselves before you and say, in so many ways, we don't know how to do this, but we want you to teach us teach us how to live together as family. Teach us how to stir one another up. Teach us how to encourage each other. Teach us how to dream together and anticipate together. Teach us how to be family together. We pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's in his name that we pray. Amen and amen. Friends, you are welcome here, you are needed here, you are loved here, and you are family here. Would you go knowing you're loved? 
in the name of Jesus. If our elders or prayer team can pray for you or with you, we would count that a joy will be up front. God bless you as you go. We'll see you next Sunday, if not sooner. We love you, South.